You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I don't know if you've ever received one of these things in the mail, but uh, the first time it happened to us, um, I was so excited. We got this thing in the mail, and it was one of those envelopes that was paper, but it had a little plastic window, and it included my favorite seven words in the postal service. Pay to the order of Eric Barton. I love those words! Paid to the order of Eric Barton. So I was so excited. Susan and I were newly married. And at the time, much as now, she had all the wisdom in our household. I had none. And so I'm thinking, this is going to be great. Pay to the order. It's a check. It's free money. So I tore it open and it said, pay to the order of Eric Barton. And it was like $10 million. I was like, yes, yes. I'm going to tell my boss to take this job and shove it and the whole thing. And we're rich. We're rich. And she was like, and I quote, hey, you idiot. It's not real like no 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 it's a check it is it says right there pay to the order of she says it's not real there's there's all kinds of strings attached there's all this fine print I said yeah but but maybe the bank won't know what if we try to like deposit it and I mean it'll be a while before they figure it out she said it's not real and sure enough I started reading the thing and it was pay to the order of Eric Barton 10 million dollars if yada 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 Fine print, fine print, fine print. And the print got finer and finer and finer and more conditions, more and if. And if you do this, 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 and I finally was like, but come on, nobody could ever do this. Nobody should ever do all these things. I, I could never, I, this is a joke. And I tore it up because it wasn't real. But it got me thinking, what if, oh, how I wish, What if the envelope came and it said simply, pay to the order of Eric Barton, $10 million, period. What if that was it? What if that's actually what it said? I mean, really, what if? How would that change everything in your life? No and ifs. No and if, and if, and if, nothing. Just pay to the order of, period. Well, this morning... Lord willing, we're going to conclude the second half of Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at a sort of a perplexing and a vexing passage, but what this passage is going to tell us, very simply, is our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this, God promised, period. God promised, period. That's the big idea, that's Paul's entire thrust of what he's going to say in this passage. Romans chapter 4, I want to remind you that the theme of the book of Romans, which is really an encapsulation of the entire Bible, the theme of the book of Romans goes like this. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. God's promise. I do this. I promise. Period. We say this all the time, that righteousness is the currency of God's kingdom. You cannot have right standing with God unless you are set right with God, unless you are full, replete, filthy, rich with the righteousness of God, and he gives it to us freely in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the promise. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 13, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. 
Paul writes this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word, and this is the gospel. The gospel the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, and there are no end ifs. It is his promise. God does this. This is Paul teaching through, preaching the gospel. Please remember, Paul is sitting in Corinth in Greece about A.D. 57, and he's gotten a report from some believers in Rome that Paul is afraid to go to Rome. And he says, no, 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 I am super eager to go to Rome to preach to you the gospel. I want to be there. I've been prevented, but I will get there. I want to give you the fully orbed gospel. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, the doctrine of condemnation. Chapters 4 and 5, the doctrine of justification. And so right now we are at the culmination, the climax, if you will, of Paul's treatment of what does justification mean. We've said justification, when I am justified, it means that I am found guilty, but declared righteous. It's not just having my sin removed. I am found guilty, but I am declared righteous. Something in me changes, and it is God's view of me. I'm found guilty, but I am declared righteous. So Paul says this is the gospel that God promises, period. There are no and ifs associated with this. So let me very briefly walk through these passages, and we'll unpack it a little bit and see how it applies to us. Verse 13, again, for the promise to Abraham. Now, this is the first time that Paul will use this word promise. He finally gets to the second half of chapter 4. He'll use the noun four times. He'll use the verb one time. This is the whole theme of this passage for this morning is the promise. In fact, it's the title of the sermon, The Promise. Paul's going to say over and over again, this is God's promise. God does this, the promise. And this word promise is a strange little Greek word. In Greek, the word for gospel is evangelion. It's where we get our word for evangelism. We gospelize people. We tell them the good news. But the word for promise is very, very similar. It's epangelion. It means a message that is directed and guaranteed to you. It's the gospel, but more sort of like aimed squarely, personally at you. And Paul's going to use this word four times as a noun, one time as a verb. 
He says, this, this promise to Abraham. Well, we have to understand that what we talked about last week, Jason Mazingo preached for us, did a, an amazing job of verses 1 through 12 telling us that Abraham was justified by faith and that that promise came to Abraham 500 years before the law. So justification is apart from works. Justification is apart from the law. Justification is apart from circumcision. And as we'll see a little bit later in this passage, justification is even against or apart from sight, what we can see with our own eyes. This passage, Paul says, the promise, how does it individually come to you? 4,000 years later, how does this actually get applied to you? This promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's a strange expression that exists only here in this passage. You're not going to find that anyplace else. The reason is that Paul is referencing the promise that God made to Abraham 2,000 years earlier in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. And in those chapters in Genesis, God repeatedly comes to Abraham and he says, I will give you three components of promise. I will give you land. Everywhere your foot sits will be yours. I will give you this land. I will give you seed, that is, many, many descendants and offspring. You will be the father of nations and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. I'm going to make you a big deal, Abraham. You're going to be the father of not just one nation, but of many nations. It's going to start with you. I'm going to do a work out of nothing in and through you. So how does that promise of land and seed and blessing come to us? Well, Paul just very succinctly summarizes it and says, to be an heir of the world. Now, we hear that and we go, heir of the world. Heir of the world is a big deal. Listen, way back at creation in the Garden of Eden, Adam was set in the garden and his job was to take a perfect environment, Eden, and to make it better. You ever thought about that? Eden was a perfect, innocent environment, and God said, get to work. I want you to identify not just this, but I want you to identify the rest of the world. That's your purvey. That's your mandate. Go, make it better. And Adam pitched the keys to his enemy because God was not enough. And so Satan has ruled, essentially and effectively, for thousands and thousands of years, but God will get it done. We are to be heirs of the world. There will come a day when we, like Adam was supposed to have done, like the last Adam, Christ, inaugurated at his coming, we will be a part of the identification of the entire world. Yes, millennials, environment matters. And we'll get to be a part of actually redeeming even the created order because we are heirs of the world. I don't hear Christians often talking in these terms, like, well, I'm gonna die one day and go to heaven. No, 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 you are an inheritor. And what is the role of the one who inherits? Nothing. It is all by the work of the parent, of the father in this case. It is bestowed and it is conveyed to the child with no string attached, no and if at all. It is a promise, when I go, you get. I know I have a son and he's already eyeing my possessions. Like, how much longer is this guy going to be around? Come on, come on, come on. Not yet. An inheritance comes to the one not based on his merit, but on the work of the father. So Paul says, we are heirs of the world because Abraham was an heir of the world. And his offspring that he would be heir of the world. This did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This did not come from anything that he did, anything that he accomplished. There was no and if. God said, I will do this. Now, I have to make a point here. This is a little bit geeky and greeky, but stick with me. The book of Romans is written by an Eastern man 
to a Western readership. Why do you care? You don't, but I do, and let me tell you what. The book of Romans is written in Greek to a Greek culture and context. The apostle Paul was born Saul of Tarsus. He's an Eastern man. Eastern peoples, even to this day, operate and think in terms of story and narrative and picture. But the Western world operates with propositional, organized, rational, reasonable truth. And so God raises up Saul of Tarsus. He is now Paul the Apostle, and he writes in a very logical, rational, reasonable way. The New Testament is written in Greek. It's not written in Hebrew like the Psalms and the Proverbs. It is a very Western text. That's what God chooses to reveal. The New Testament is in Greek, and in a very logical way, Paul writes this down. And so it's very complex. He's making this very convoluted, it seems, argument to make his point, but it's airtight and it's irrefutable. He's going to start this argument in verse 14. For if the adherents of the law, who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. He's going to make a philosophical argument. Listen, if justification or salvation comes from doing stuff, obeying the law, that's the law of Moses, the Torah, if it comes from doing that, then Abraham's faith is empty and God's promise is has failed. They would have gasped when they read, you can't say that Abraham's faith was empty. You can't say that. Paul says, right, exactly. But if you think that salvation is by obeying a set of moral constraints or a code of conduct, then what you are saying is that Abraham had no faith and that God's promise has failed. But they would say, that's that's impossible. God's promise can't fail. God cannot lie. That would un-God God. Paul says, exactly. Therefore, Faith is the only way to have salvation. It can't be from doing anything, including trying hard, including being gooder, being better, or even agreeing with a set of doctrinal constructs. Nope. It is faith is the only way to have righteousness. I'll make that point in verse 15 now. For the law brings wrath. You want to adhere to the law? Understand, all that's doing is stirring up God's anger. It just makes him matter. So if you think that's the way to please God, you have to understand it's actually the opposite. The more you try to obey the law, the more you break it, and the more that stirs up God's wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That little clause has caused people to stumble for millennia. Here's the deal. Here's what Paul's saying. It's a wordplay. It's a little bit geeky-greeky here again, but Paul's making a special category of sin. Yes, All sin is sin and an affront to a holy God. But Paul comes with a new category. There is transgression. If I step on private property and I don't know that it's private property, I'm still trespassing. It's sin. It's error. But I'm not doing it willfully and out of rebellion. A trespass is when I see the signs is posted, no trespassing, private property, keep out. And I go, (laughs) that's a trespass. And Paul says, when we try to keep the law, what we're actually doing is trespassing, meaning we're not being gooder, we're actually doubly guilty. So if you're trying to earn God's favor and impress him by trying to do good stuff, you're actually heaping double penalty on yourself. So stop it! Don't do that! That's not the way to go! That's a terrible idea, don't do that. And it's an airtight, irrefutable argument that Paul makes, which they would have said, boy, okay, well then, well then, so then so what are we supposed to do? Paul's going to get there as well. Verse 16, this is why it depends on faith. You don't do anything. Righteousness, the promise, inclusion into the promise depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. 
This is one of the most important verses in your New Testament. In order that, the promise would be, and the actual translation would be, according to grace. Your inclusion into the promise of God is according to grace. I know that just sounds like a churchy expression, a big whoop, who cares? It is the most important expression in your Bible. It's the only place Paul will use it, according to grace. Your justification, your salvation is according to grace. God's unmerited favor. You did nothing to earn it. God has his reason for justifying you, but you ain't it. It is according to grace. By definition, means God does a thing because God wants to do a thing, not because of anything that you offer him. That would be a transaction. It's not how it is. The promise is according to his grace. God promised, period. Not because of what a sweet little church person you are. No, no, no. The promise is according to his grace, simply because God says so. Again in verse 16 that the promise may be according to grace and be guaranteed. See, that's why this verse is so important. It is according to his grace and therefore that is the guarantee. The word is bebeon. It is confirmed. It is certain. It is sure. The only way your salvation and my salvation can be sure is if God does it and promises. And he cannot undo that promise because he cannot un-God God. So let me put it this way. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? Yes, if Jesus can sin. And that's it. This is what this is saying. You should star, asterisk, happy face, emoji, this verse in your Bible. It doesn't get bigger than this. The only way a Christian can, sin, can lose his salvation is if Jesus can sin because you are in Christ. God promised, period. There's nothing you can do to undo that. The New Testament knows nobody who wants that, incidentally. Continuing on verse 16. So that would be the guarantee that it is according to his grace and he will not undo that. That is the guarantee to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. When we believe like Abraham believed, who is the father of us all. I don't know many Christians who think of themselves as um, the offspring of Abraham, but when we understand the enormity of what God did for Abraham when Abraham is sitting on his knees in Ur of the Chaldees, which is in modern-day Iraq, ancient Babylon, and he's 72 years old, and he has a barren wife, and he's a moon worshiper, a pagan, not seeking after God, and God says, Abe, walk. To which Abraham goes, yeah, I don't know, I'm kind of busy. No, Abraham got up and started walking because that's what God did with him, and that's our story. That is our story. He is the father of us all. Father Abraham, you see, had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise... Oh, they should write a song about that. That'd be really good. It's a great song. He's the father of us all, Paul will say. Verse 17, as it is written. Paul is now going to say, see also the Old Testament. Now, this is so great. Paul appeals to the Old Testament. By the way, Saul of Tarsus knew these scriptures himself better than anybody. But until the Holy Spirit illumined it for him, it didn't click. The penny didn't drop. But when Paul received faith on the road to Damascus, suddenly this stuff all began to fit into place. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Whoa, whoa. 
Paul quotes Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, where God comes to Abraham, who, by the way, has no children, who has a wife, who is barren, and God says, notice the verb tenses, I have made you the father of many nations. Abraham has no kids. In the mind of God, it has already happened. God gives Abraham what we call future history. I know that's a seeming contradiction, but it's not to God. He's fine with that. I have made you. It's already done in God's mind. You just trust me. And Abraham does. Watch what it says. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And then Paul's going to give us two aspects of conversion. This is what conversion is. This is what it looks like. Number one, God gives life to the dead. That's what conversion is. He takes dead things and makes them alive. He doesn't take slightly ungood things and make them marginally better so that they'll behave a a little bit nicer. He doesn't go about flipping people like this great cosmic Chip and Joanna Gaines in the sky. That's not God. He takes dead things and he makes them alive. Not mostly dead all day, dead dead. That's what God does. Number two, he also calls into existence the things that do not exist. (laughs) That's what God's word does. It calls into existence things that are not. That's why there is something instead of nothing because God said so. When God at the creation said, let there be light, before he even got to the, light was taking off across the cosmos. Light did not go, I don't know, it's Thursday. I got a thing, I before God finished the sentence, light was filling the universe because when God says, let there be, there be. Paul equates your and my and his conversion to creation, something out of nothing, death to life. What role did light have in taking off across the cosmos? Did light make a decision? Did light ask God into his heart? No, light took off because it came out of nothing into something. Paul's making a very bold claim. Your conversion and mine comes out of nothing into something, out of death into life because God promises, period. There are no and ifs. You don't have to do anything. And as soon as you try to help him out, you're missing the point entirely. God promised, period. He's gonna continue on, verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. This is Paul's way of saying, against all human hope, against all of the evidence, against all that he could see. (laughs) Remember, Abraham's 100 by this point. His wife is 90. Also remember that Abraham receives the promise from God when he's 75. God makes him wait 25 years, and she does not age backwards, incidentally. He makes... Abraham and Sarah wait an extra 25 years. Why? Just so that they and we will understand that their bodies were as good as dead, dead, dead. And it's kind of explicit. The word Paul uses here is necros, where we get necropolis, the city of the dead, that we're dead people. It's dead, not old and infirm. It's dead, dead. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, and she's 90. He did not weaken in his faith. That's interesting. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Uh, Really? Have you read Genesis? Abraham messed up all the time. 
His faith went wacky all the time. I mean, he gets the promise from God. God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham says, got it. Hagar, get in here. Oh, by the way, Abimelech, the, the king, this, this is my, my sister. Why would you go with that one? I don't understand. This is my sister. And he does it twice. He continues to waver in his faith. Why does Paul say this? This is the same reason we're going to find guys in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, like Lot and Samson, that dirtbag, and then they're in the hall of faith. Why? Because they trusted God. They were fully convinced that God could do what God said he would do. Now that's instructive. He did not weaken in faith, verse 19, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. See, I wish this was not translated thus. No English translation gets this right because nobody knows how to translate it. The text actually says Abraham was grown strong in his faith. But nobody can say that because if that's the case, then that's weird. And what do you mean he was grown strong? It means something acted upon him. Something was growing his faith and it wasn't him trying harder. I've heard people use this passage of, well, you just, you just got to believe. You just, you just have to believe more. You have to have stronger faith. And I go, I don't know how to do that. How do I just believe? Have you ever tried to just believe something? Like, is it core strength that you really have to? I don't know how to just force myself to believe something. And yet that's often what we put on people. You just have to believe. But what if I don't? How do I just? And I see people trying to believe things, but it's not an imperative. It doesn't work that way. Abraham, verse 21, was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the key. He was convinced that God could do what God said he would do. Fully convinced. Verse 20, he gave glory to God. When we believe God, when we trust him, that is an act of worship. That is bringing glory to God. Yes, we should sing. Yes, we should do all these other things. Yes, we should give tithes and offerings and all these things. But when we trust God, fully convinced that he can do what he says he will do, that brings glory to God. That actually is worship. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Counted, it's not an accounting term this time. The word is declared. He was declared righteous because he fully trusted that God could do what God said he would do. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, oh no, no, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe and just in case anyone was starting to think that Paul was a universalist, meaning that everybody gets in, everybody's finally saved at the end. No, no, no. Paul says there is a content to our faith. There is a content to what we believe. Who believes in him, that's God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. That's the content of our faith. Jesus is alive. If you don't know what else to say, that's it. This is what Paul is telling us, that Jesus is alive. You don't have to take a quiz about the timing of the rapture or how many tribes there were or any of those kinds, or name all 12 disciples, go. No, 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 no. Is Jesus alive? That's the question, because if he's alive, by definition, he must be God. If he's God, he is Lord. If he is Lord, his word is authoritative. That's the whole point. This is what we believe. I think he's alive. I can't explain it. I don't know how God created. I don't know how God raised Jesus from the dead, but I trust, I am fully convinced that he did. Jesus is alive. That's the content of our faith. Who, verse 25, was this Jesus, was delivered up. This is a, this is a tragic word. Parodidoma, he was served up like a platter. God said, this 
is my son with whom I am well pleased. I am offering him. I am serving him up. Why? Why would he do that? For our trespasses. Because of our willful rebellion and our falling short, God offers him up. And raised, he is alive to vindicate and to verify that he is God for our justification. So that, this is the end of chapter 4, we who are found guilty, our trespasses would be declared righteous just like Abraham. The whole point is that God promised, period. No strings attached, no and ifs, nothing else. So how does that actually work its way into our lives? Let me just give three very quick principles. Number one goes like this. Faith is to grace as sight is to light. Now that's a little bit perplexing and vexing and it's a head scratcher. I understand that. This is not original to me. This is 500 years old. This is one of the ways the reformers would talk about what faith and grace, how they relate. Faith is to grace as sight is to light. Grace is there. It is working. We have but open our eyes to see. We don't do a thing to get grace. Grace exists. God is working. And if you're hearing this passage preached, then I can say with quite strong authority, God wants you to believe this. Grace, or sorry, faith is to grace as sight is to light. We don't have to go and do a thing or figure a bunch of stuff out, get eight points in a row and go, okay, and now I agree with all of this. Bam, I'm in. Nope. Doesn't work that way. Number two. God's opinion of you matters more than yours. Now, this is really good news. Did you hear what it said? Abraham's faith did not waver. No unbelief caused him to stray. And yet he did. And yet he did. So what's going on here? In the mind of God, he didn't. Of course he did. But in the mind of God, he didn't. This is what it means to be in Christ. When God sees you, when God sees me, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, what he sees is Christ. Do you sin? Of course. And you should confess your sin. Of course you should. And yet, God is not disappointed in you. Now listen, this is super important for a guy like me because there are these things that come up in my life. I call them Mondays. And every Monday, I'm just like, oh gosh, I am a wretched, horrible human. I sure hope God didn't hear that sermon. Oh my goodness. But he loves me. And his opinion of me is more valuable than my opinion of me. It matters more than mine. That's very good news. God promised, period. Number three. This is a bit sobering, but this is truth. Your biggest sin may be ahead of you. Abraham receives the promise of God and he sins. King David is told, your seed will sit on the throne forever. You are a man after my own heart. At which point, he kills Bathsheba's husband and has an affair with her. Being saved, being justified, does not mean you will continue to get better necessarily. That's too much burden. You might not. I pray that you do. But your biggest sin may be ahead of you. I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm saying it does not, cannot, will not ever undo the promise. And if you are rooting your justification, your salvation, the recipient of the promised blessings in your behavior, you're rooting it in the wrong place. I don't know how old all of you are, but there's still plenty of time for each and every one of you to ruin your marriage. And that will not undo God's promised blessing. 
It'll be grievous. Yes, of course, there are consequences, but it does not undo the promise that God has given. God promised, period. So in closing, here's the last challenge. Laugh it off, for real. It is no accident, it is no coincidence that the primary point that Paul is using in the second half of this chapter is about Abraham and Sarah. And what is the name of their child? It's Isaac. Itzach in Hebrew, which means laughter. Why? Because it's funny. <laughs> Abraham was a hundred. She was 90. And they had a boy. God said, you're going to have a child. And Sarah went, <laughs> are you serious? Are you... It was funny. And that's your conversion story. It's funny. There's absolutely no reason God should save you, but he does, and he has, because he loves you according to his grace. And so you and I get to laugh it off. When we begin to feel burdened by all the things we're not doing well, or all the things we should do better, or we should, we should, we should, we should, we should. <laughs> I'm an heir of the world. It's not a check for $10 million. It's real. I'm an heir of the world because God promised, period. This is my truth for all eternity. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I invite you to believe that Jesus is alive. I'm not asking you to explain it. I'm not asking you to tell me the molecular biology of how it occurred. I'm asking you to believe that Jesus is alive. Because if that's true, then that changes everything. And if that's true, what Paul will say, what Peter will say, is that if you believe that, that does not come to you through flesh and blood. It is a gift of the Spirit. So if you think he's alive, if you believe that he's alive, then God will continue to do a work in you until the day of Christ Jesus. I encourage you, I invite you to believe that for the rest of you who have forgotten that you are an heir of the world and you're still trying to do a bunch of stuff to earn God's blessing and favor, I invite you to believe. God promised, period. There are no and ifs. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have promised and your promise is cannot fail by definition you cannot ungod yourself so god we pray if there's anyone in this room who does not know you that you would move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son that they would step out of death into life out of darkness into light that the creation story would be their conversion story as well father for the rest of us who are believers would you encourage us anew that the promise holds and you promised period. There are no end ifs. There are no strings attached. There are no conditions. Father, I pray that your word would continue to sound forth and that we would share the blessing in the community in which you've placed us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. We got someone here at the front. Jamin would love to pray with you. If there's anything going on in your life you would like prayer or anything you heard this morning, this comes to us from the book of Peter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you this week. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.